0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're on the phone with Mr. Gary Berghoff, and you're listening to The Drew Marshall Show. And uh, Gary, I want to ask you this. Uh, I understand how Charlie Brown led to Radar, but how much of the character Radar is actually based on Gary Berghoff, who you were, who you, who you were as a person?
1: You know, the, the question to an actor, the question doesn't compute. Okay. Because um, every actor, every character that an actor plays, is drawn from the actor's own well of experience, and own well of emotion, and own you know well of intellect. It, it, it's all. You cannot separate. If if the actor is doing his job, you can't separate the character from the actor, or the actor from the character. However, that's true with every character that an actor plays, not just a single character. Hmm. Uh, if I play, you know, the villain in a piece. I have to find the humanity in that villain, uh, in order for the, I, he may not be sympathetic to the viewer, but he has to be sympathetic to, in some, to some extent to me in order for me to play him, to flesh him out and play him as a three-dimensional character. So when people ask me how much of me is in radar, I, I always say, well, all of me is in radar. Hmm. But, the, but, there's a little bit of radar and all of me in every character that I play on the stage or in film or on television.
0: Well, I mean the and that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes total sense. I mean, but it, I, I guess I only came to an understanding later in your career that that the drumming scene I saw you in was I don't know whether one or two, but I remember seeing you drum.
1: This is because Larry Gelbart loved to uh, marry some of the uh, roles that you played in your real life with the characters that he wrote. Hmm. Uh, and he would come to your home and he, he saw, for instance, that I had a sanctuary for injured animals, uh, uh, wild animals in my backyard. He saw a hundred, you know, seagulls and pelicans and loons uh, in pens in my backyard that I was nurturing to return back into the environment. And within two weeks, he had radar having a... Uh, you know, radars, uh, little
0: pet village, yeah, there. animal
1: animal orphanage. Yeah. Yeah, on the show. Well, you so, were
0: you were known as the Birdman of Malibu.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: There's a good name to that have. That was on. an
1: affectionate name. <laughs> People couldn't remember by name, so they <laughs> they said bring him to the Birdman. <laughs> what Birdman? The Birdman of Malibu.
0: <laughs> well, look, the musician inside of you i mean that came out you played drums uh out of high school i think in uh, delvin wisconsin you were with the uh, the bud wilbur orchestra and that's
1: right that was a it was a big band a yeah, swing band yeah wow and i that was a great uh, uh great experience i was very fortunate to be that last generation and the last of these little local swing bands that were still working you know uh to play with these musicians many of them were retirees from Tex Beneke and from uh, Benny Goodman and from, you know, the great uh, uh, swing band.
0: Well, you you were a decent drummer. I mean, you when did you start the Mardi Gras Celebration Jazz Band?
1: After MASH. After MASH. Yeah, the, the, the year that I left MASH, I needed some kind of recreational thing just to keep my mind off of things. And traditional jazz is a passion, or at least it, it certainly was a passion at that time in my life. And it was something that I could do in the evenings, uh, and still be, you know, a dad to my my kids uh, all day long. And and so um, I formed a, a band with some of the great musicians uh, hanging around Los Angeles. Uh, some of them were from the Tonight Show Orchestra and uh, various other musicians who had played with all the greats. And I was uh, they, they were they were much better musicians than I was, and I played better because I. You know, formed the band and played with these
2: great sure, musicians. Sure.
1: It was a fun thing. But you know, the interesting thing, the negative, the the, the negativity of the of the tabloid press. They had me. Uh, they they wrote that I was a has-been No more than two weeks after I left Nash, uh, and they used uh, the the Dixieland jazz band that I had formed just for fun. Uh, as an example, that I was playing in these little dives, uh, and they tried to make a sad story out of that. And all it was was uh, a, a, an expression of just getting back to life and the fun things that I had enjoyed before. You, you know, before I was uh, on a national television show, I was just being me, and and they tried to make it into a negative thing. And I was getting letters from fans saying, oh, please, Mr. Burghoff, please take heart and, you know, trust the Lord, and, <laughs> and so on and so forth. And, of course, I was trusting in the Lord. I, I, I had for many years, but especially during that period of time of transition, you know, trusting the Lord was very much uh, involved with just being me and going back to my roots.
0: Yeah, you know? for sure. Well, look, here's a little clip of uh, Gary Burghoff just having fun doing Sing, Sing, Sing. Oh, man. You had a lot of fun doing that stuff.
1: I did. What what, what album is that? For?
0: That's off the um, the Marty Celebration jazz band. Oh, it was the
1: Mardi Gras Celebration yep. just for fun. All just for, that's f- that's it.
0: That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was good. And and vocals, too, I might add. Let me throw this one at you.
1: Every time it rains, it rains. And it's from heaven. heaven. Each and every cloud contains. And from yeah, I, f- I just found two boxes of those albums when I was cleaning out my house up in Connecticut. <laughs> really? And I think there's the two, the only two boxes in existence. <laughs>
0: well, up, up another part of Radar, obviously from the music side or the drum side, was the Animals, and, and uh, if I understand things right, when you were young, you were you, you bred angelfish, you worked in a in a in a pet shop. But the story that got my attention—you'll have to tell me if this is true or not. Apparently, you freed a bunch of ducks from a neighbor's farm.
1: They were geese. (laughs) They were big, big geese, very large geese. And and there was a little neighbor, you know, a little uh, family farm. Uh, It was a family called the Gudats. And every day when I'd walk home from school, I was only about six years old. And, And every day I'd pass their house, and I'd see these geese in this dry pen with just a little bowl of water. And my neighbor, who lived directly next to me had a goldfish pond and it just seemed to me that those geese belonged in that goldfish pond <laughs> rather than on that dry land so one day i just went in and broke in, <laughs> i broke into the pen and if you can imagine a six-year-old kid carrying these huge geese i had them tucked under my arm and it took like three trips uh, in order to get them all over to my immediate neighbor's uh, goldfish
0: pond. Oh man!
1: Uh, it, I got into a great deal of trouble.
0: I, I hope you did. That's but, hilarious. But
1: the geese had a great time.
0: Oh, sure they did. Sure they did. Uh, in the last, uh, uh, Gary, look at the time. It's been an hour. In the last hour, you have mentioned the Lord a couple of times, and uh, and and what is what is that about? I, I just want to you know ask you straight up. Wh- when was it that you first surrendered your life to God and, and became a follower of Christ?
1: Well, it really was that was that period of 1979 when I was leaving uh, MASH and and re-examining my life. I was 32, or maybe I was 35, I can't remember, but I was was in my early to mid-30s. And, you know, that's the age when many people just begin to decide to be themselves uh, and to adjust their lives. And my father just passed away during that period. so I had a divorce, and I had I had my father passing away at the same time. It was a very, a very traumatic, and I was a single parent at that same time. It was a very traumatic time. A whole lot of things were coming together, very, very deep feelings. And my father had said to me very early on when I was in New York struggling, he said, you know, if you don't know the Bible, you don't have a foundation. You have to have a foundation. And I had told him from an agnostic uh, point of view that, the Bible was a very good book, but it wasn't the only book. And, you know, all the kinds of justifications that people make. Sure. Well, at this period, I realized that he, he may have something because my life was empty to a great extent. I had, I had given myself over to the, you know, to the world, uh, rather than to God. So I started examining the Bible and when you're ready, when you become that empty vessel w- waiting to be filled, Uh, the veil gets lifted, and you suddenly understand the words. The words uh, become comprehensive to you, and that's what happened. The Bible before was always an enigma to me. I tried to read it, but I couldn't really understand it. And now I could understand it. It was just like overnight, because because as the Lord said, ask and you shall receive, I was asking for the first time.
0: Finally, yeah.
1: And I received the knowledge, and it was just a revelation to me that all of this wisdom and all of this knowledge existed. And then, uh, you know, the, the Bible never left my side. For two years I studied it virtually every day. And and then I began to join uh, Bible study groups, all denominations, by the way, uh, everything from Jewish groups to uh, uh, to Baptist to Catholic. To, uh, of course, the Catholics don't do a whole lot of studying of the Bible. They don't have a, a lot of Bible study groups, but... But a lot of uh, a lot of uh, churches in Christendom do, sure. and, and I would just uh, join them in my travels around the country. I would join them wherever they existed, and it became uh, really a search, a uh, great uh, adventure uh, for me. And I began to look at the world entirely differently. Uh, it, it, it was an amazing transformation.
0: When would you say your your spiritual life? You know your walk with Christ, whatever phrase you want to put on it
1: well, that's a good phrase,
0: yeah when would you say it was the most tested
1: well um, I think I think that after I had given myself and then experienced another divorce, which was right. quite recent, I think that's probably the the time when it was the most tested because you really hope, and you think that everything's going to be all right after that, after you give yourself over, and everything isn't perfect, you still have struggles, and the Lord still has lessons to teach, and you're still not, and nor will you ever be as perfect as Christ. You still have to, you still have work to
0: do. So you had these expectations. had,
1: had expectations that, here, here I'm now... Not only talking the talk, but walking the walk with the Lord, and I'm still having, you know, trouble in a marriage. Well, when you look at it uh, on the face of it, I married a wonderful woman, but who was not walking the same Christian walk, mm. and and uh, and therefore there was a a great communication gap in the marriage. It wasn't her fault, no. and it wasn't really my fault, except that I made the wrong choice. I think. Now, saying that, I have two fabulous children from that marriage. So, you know, I would be a hypocrite if I said, I wish the marriage never took place.
0: Uh, so how, how long ago was the, the, your second divorce?
1: Uh, quite recently. Uh, it just became final last December.
0: Right. Wow.
1: You... I'll tell you something, though. It took us 12 years to divorce. We separated in 92. Mm-hmm. Now, here, here's, the, here, here's the thing. Now I had a choice. I was on the East Coast, and she moved to the West Coast with our two boys because she wanted them enrolled in school out there. She felt she was raised there, and she felt there was a better school system. I had a a choice again: am I going to give up my life? I was living. I'm an East Coaster, you know. I'm a New Englander. Uh, Am I going to sacrifice now uh, my desire to go back to my roots, or am I going to be a father to my kids? Right. And my choice was a very easy one. I'm going to be a father to my kids first, because that, that like my walk with the Lord, is who I am. I'm a daddy, and I chose to be a daddy. I wanted to be a daddy. So I moved all the way across the country and moved right down the street from her, and we raised our children together, even though we had our differences and even though we were living under different roofs and were uh, truly separated. Right parents who especially fathers I think who don't do that I think that they're sacrificing something absolutely wonderful uh, a divorce is between two people it's not between the parent and their children and should never be between the parent and their children you don't divorce your children mm. and so uh, I know that the Lord hates divorce but he, he, he hates abandonment i think a lot more
0: well you know there's there's three things i've always said about divorce number one god never ever desires it number number two though uh it's sometimes permissible and number three and most importantly it's it's always forgivable
1: praise the lord i hope that's the case i i, I certainly have consternation and and guilt uh you know over the fact that the divorces took place because i think I think that in a wider scope, they probably shouldn't have, and, and would we would have been better off uh, staying together, but that's the way it was, yeah. and, and you, can't, you cannot change the, the world. All you can change is the way you view the world and how you respond to it and how you, you live uh, with it, uh, and hopefully walking on the narrow path of righteousness uh, with God.
0: And Gary, one of the things I've always had a hard time with, uh, having followed Christ for uh, you know twenty-five plus years, is is the getting the grace thing. You know, getting the, uh, the 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 idea or the concept that that yes, you've chosen to have that thought life or you've chosen to do that action, and yet God is still in hot pursuit of you. His His love is so annoying sometimes, and I I just don't I have a hard time understanding His grace.
1: Yeah, that's that thing of, uh, where Christ says, for, "For for for God makes it rain upon the good and the wicked, or the righteous and the wicked." Mm-hmm. And when you're righteous, uh, you are the recipient recipient of blessings. And when you're w- wicked, you're the recipient of blessings.
0: Yeah, what is that?
1: Well, it's called unconditional love.
0: It's a hard and it's a hard thing to get.
1: Well, it's a hard thing for human beings to understand. Yeah, it's also. You know, agape love, which is the transference of that unconditional love from God to your fellow man. Hmm. Uh, that's also a hard thing, evidently, for us to understand. But it's a very powerful force, and it is a reality in the universe.
0: Gary, what spiritual uh, discipline, so to speak, do you have in your life that kind of keeps you, I don't know, spiritually on tap?
1: Well, uh, Christian fellowship, um, and, and also uh, the, the, the Word. The, the word contained in the Bible. Uh, without the word, I, I'm rootless. I, I have no foundation. And I, whenever uh, things g- seem bleak, I go back to that source. You know, I'm a sourcist. I call myself a sourcist. When I started my wildlife art, the reason why I chose wildlife, because that's where the beauty is. And if art is a, is a, is a is a personal expression of the beauty that you see in life. I wanted to go to the source. Well, I do the same thing with spiritual beauty. Uh, I, you know, I, I, when I decided that I wanted to cultivate the spiritual side of my life, of, of my being, uh, I went to the source, um, and that's the that's the holy scriptures. I know a lot of people today really take them for granted, or even poo-poo the scriptures. Uh, it's an amazing thing to me that this, that the wisdom contained in that book that is thousands of years old, that has outsold every other book uh, in, in the history of mankind uh, to, a, to such an extent that it's uh, almost laughable, um, uh, can be uh, taken for granted by those who only... Dabble in it. Uh, it is a fascinating uh, document that has uh, uh, proven itself to be so accurate uh, throughout the ages. I mean, to think, to think that it was only 100, maybe 110 years ago, that Madame Curie, uh, that, that, that the Curies, uh, that, uh, discovered uh, uh, microorganisms, uh, germs, and yet thousands of years ago in the scriptures. Uh, we are told to wash our hands if, if we if we uh, touch the sick person or if we touched a, uh, a deceased person to always wash our hands well uh, uh, you know thousands of years before we discovered microorganisms that's just one very small uh, example of how the bible has always had the answers for us if we just Put it all into context and really studied
0: it. Oh, the accuracies are incredible. I mean, historically, geographically, scientifically, prophetically, it's a uh, it's a very very accurate book. You're listening to the Drew Marshall Show. We're on the phone with Mr. Gary Burkhoff. We're going to let him go fairly soon, but before we let you go, Gary, um, what's what's you know what's the Lord been teaching you lately? What's what's been on your heart?
1: Well, one of the uh, things that I feel very strongly about is this movement that the, that the the historical revisionists who are trying to take God out of the scenario in America. Uh, To me, America is an idea, and that idea was born when Thomas Jefferson, with the the help of uh, other members of the First Continental Congress, wrote this line, we find these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our creator, inalienable rights, rights that were not given by a king, not given by an elitist who who was in power, not given by our fellow man, but given by God to us pre-birth, before our birth. Uh, Rights that cannot be refuted and rights that cannot be reversed. By any government of the world, that idea of America established the bar. Now, let me just give you a scenario. Let, let me try to do this scientifically. Imagine a graph in your in your head, the kind of graph you might see uh, on Wall Street to show the climb or decline of a certain stock. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, when the bar was written, when the, when when the declaration, that first line in the declaration was written, the revisionist. Today will say, well, that didn't include African Americans who were enslaved, that didn't include women, that didn't include uh, uh, minorities, the Native Americans, but actually it did, and it did in this way. If you read the letters of Thomas Jefferson, uh, the the, the Jefferson uh, Adams letters are very good, very important documents to read. You will see that that even before he wrote that that one line, his His intention was to actually expose the hypocrisy of the way we were living at that time. He was establishing a bar. He wasn't saying, this is the way it is. He says this is the way it should be. And from the very moment that he wrote that idea of America, uh, the graft has been going upward toward that bar. Let me give you examples of that. Sure. The first example that that I would cite was the Amistad case. Uh, Steven Spielberg did a wonderful movie called the, uh, called Amistad. For those who haven't seen it, you must rent it and see it. Brilliant movie. A brilliant movie. This was a, a case where where uh, uh, kidnapped Africans were, were were kidnapped illegally from their home in Africa and being they were being brought to uh, uh, America uh, via the Cuban slave market. And they rebelled uh, aboard ship and took over the ship, and they, but they ended up in, uh, off the coast of America. And it, the case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court of the United States, which was comprised mostly of southern slave owners, found the Africans to be innocent, even though they had killed the, the, uh, the, the people on the ship who were bringing them here. and and gave them their freedom. This was in 18, I believe, 1830. That was the first move toward the bar, Hmm. which is the idea of America. All men are created equal. Now, you'd go 30 years hence, and you get the Civil War. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's actual philosophy might be considered racist today if you read what he wrote about uh, freeing the slaves. But the Civil War forced the issue. He, he hated slavery, but he didn't want to break up the Union. But once the war started, uh, he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. That was a giant step upward on that graph hmm. that I'm asking you to visualize toward the bar. Sure. Which is at the top of the graph, the idea of America. Then came uh, World War I. What were we fighting for? By this time, we were a government of the people, for the people, by the people, firmly, firmly engrossed in that idea of America, uh, that God had created us with inalienable rights that cannot be a taken, taken away by elitists, by uh, any world government. And that's why we were fighting World War I. Then we left a vacuum after World War I. We made some mistakes. And out of this vacuum came Adolf Hitler and the master race, well, most certainly we fought World War II against that idea of a master race and for the idea of all men are created equal. And when we won that, uh, we we had another giant step upward toward the bar. Then, at the end of World War II, another very interesting thing happened. A guy by the name of Harry Truman, who, by the way, had used the word nigger many times in his childhood growing up. He had his prejudices growing up in, in Missouri. sure, But he integrated the U.S. Armed Forces because he had such a sense of justice. He said, I'm not going to ask American black people to fight for this country and not give them the same rights in the military. That was another... Uh, uh, Big step, step and, on the graph. step on the graph. Yeah. Then... A, now I'd like to just go to a 16-year-old kid in my scenario who's walking along the street in this little midwestern town where he had just moved uh, on a Saturday afternoon, and a a newfound friend of his comes up and says, hey, there's this guy talking uh, on the back of a hay wagon in front of the hotel in this little midwestern town. Uh, I don't know what office he's running for, but there's nothing else to do. Let's go over and listen. (laughs) So this young 16-year-old kid goes over and he listens to this handsome man on the back of this hay wagon talking to a group of adults, small group of adults, maybe 15, 20 people, about farm issues and about uh, the economy and so on and so forth. And this kid, who's very nervous because he's new in the town, uh, has to screw up his courage to raise his hand to ask a question. And he finally does, and the question is, If you're elected to office and the kid had no idea what office this man was running for, what do you intend to do about seeing that Negroes and other minorities get the same treatment as as the rest of us? uh, Because there's great inequality and great inequities in our country. And that man looked down and smiled. He actually blushed because he saw that shaking hand from that young man. And he heard the waver in his voice and the insecurity in his voice. And he said, if I'm elected president, one of the first things I intend to do is to write a civil rights act that will once and for all guarantee uh, civil rights for every individual hmm. in the United States of America. Well, the young boy was Gary Berghoff. Really? And, and the man was John F. Kennedy, uh, Senator John F. Kennedy, who was running for president of the United States.
0: Really? And,
1: yes, that's a true story. And I often wondered if when he was writing that, that civil rights bill, which was 300 years overdue after all, and people had, uh, American presidents, uh, FDR being one of them, had uh, foregone you know, writing a civil rights bill because of other political considerations. And uh, it was a very difficult thing to do because it caused so much social uh, you know, trouble at the time. I often wondered if he thought about that scared 16-year-old kid when he wrote it. But whether he did or he didn't, the graft went through the the top mark and reached, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, very close to, to the bar. Now, it's not there yet. Don't get me wrong. It's not there yet. But the, the graft shows a constant climb towards the idea of America. So for all of these revisionists, I say... Uh, think twice and, you know, imagine that graph and think again, and I think you'll revise your your revisionary approach to American history. And thank you for letting me say (laughs) that. That's been on my mind for a lot of years, and I've never had an opportunity to say it.
0: When Kennedy was assassinated, yes. how did that affect you?
1: It broke my heart. It broke the heart of our country. I think it broke a lot of people's hearts around the world. It also uh, created a a new cynicism, which I think is what we're reaping today from the far left. Well said. Uh, But it didn't make me cynical. Uh, I thought that John F. Kennedy, as as Robert Kennedy said, he made our country young again. This was a man who believed that uh, we could reach the moon. Well, the the moon was only a symbolic thing. Reaching the moon was only a It thing. It showed that what people aspired to that was good and that was productive and that was uh, imaginative and, and great, we could achieve, but we had to do it in a... Uh, oh, it, it, don't forget that at the same time he formed the Peace Corps, we had to do it in an atmosphere of, of peace and, and, and respect and love for our fellow man around the world. So I've always felt that, uh, that his presidency was... Uh, uh, a great symbol of optimism, and that didn't die in me uh hmm. when he was assassinated it did break my heart, but you know a, a heart really can't be broken it's flexible uh what it did was it wrenched my heart, but my heart was resilient and i and and the lord has always uh shown me the light through the darkest you know uh moments in my life continues to do
0: so sure sure gary i um well, first of all, I'm, I'm very thankful you spent this this time with us. You spent an enormous amount of time with us. I'm very appreciative. I know you don't do interviews.
1: No, I don't. I only do them when I'm working, and the producer asks me to do it to promote, you know, whatever project I'm doing. But I appreciate your calling me, Drew, and I, I, I don't, as I say, I don't do interviews. I just happen to like you, and... Uh, And I appreciate uh, very much your Christian fellowship that we've had uh, over this last week.
0: It's been uh, a rather interesting journey, uh, how everything got put together. But anyway, uh, all that being said, uh, thank you, Gary, so much for sharing your heart with us up here in Canada. As a brother in Christ, how can we pray for you?
1: Uh, Just uh, pray that the Lord lead. Uh, Pray this prayer. Uh, This is a prayer from an aunt of mine who lived to be over 102 years old, and I asked her once, to what she attributed her uh, longevity. And she said, Every morning I ask the Lord to lead me to what He would have me do. And every evening I thank Him for answering my prayer. Hmm. And so if your folks there, uh, fellow Christians, would would pray that the Lord would lead, lead me uh, every day to what He would have me do, I would appreciate that.
0: Folks, stay with us. We will be opening up the phone lines to you coming up on the Drew Marshall Show.